very, very disturbing. It's a, there's a lot of violence, there's a lot of confrontation. It's a very disturbing event that takes place in Gadara on this particular day. Uh, Gadara is directly opposite Galilee. Galilee, I mean, excuse me, <laughs> Capernaum. Capernaum to the north end of the Sea of Galilee. Gadara is at the very southern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's about a 13-mile distance between the two, the two locations. And, and as you know, Christ leaves Capernaum after teaching and healing and preaching. He gets into the boat with the apostles and sails the 13 miles down to Gadara. If you have a fair wind, you can do six knots. You can be there in two hours. Of course, as you know, on the way, it was not fair conditions. It was not a good wind. There was a violent storm. And oftentimes, this is a lesson for us, that oftentimes when we want to do good, when we want to pursue God, there is going to be resistance. There is going to be resistance. And it's always going to be there for us. And, and sometimes to test us, to see how determined we are to be with God. How determined we are to do good. How determined we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So Christ arrives on the shore of Gadara, and he meets this wild, crazy man. And it's terrifying. It's, ter it's a terrifying scene. But in a sense, it is a vivid portrait, a grotesque, but a very vivid portrait of what fallen humanity looks like. This is the portrait of fallen humanity. This is many, in many respects, very unlike the other healings that Christ is, is, is so uh, famously known for. Most of the time, he responds to individuals who come to him with a need. Christ takes the initiative on this occasion. He goes to Gadara. Nobody asks him or begs him for mercy or for healing. He takes it upon himself to confront this evil, to confront this fallenness. So in some respects, the portrait of this demoniac is the portrait of humanity. Fallen humanity. Fallen humanity that chooses to turn its back on God. Fallen humanity that thinks that it can live independently of God. Be self-determination. I can be on, I can do well on my own. This is the original sin of mankind. This is the original sin of Adam and Eve, man and women, when we voluntarily choose to turn our back on God and want to go it on our own, as if we really ever could. This is the original sin. It's not what is taught by Augustine and the Latin church about the seminal transmission of sin, the stain of disobedience that is passed on from generation to generation automatically. It's not, that's nonsense. The original sin of mankind and the perpetual sin of mankind is voluntarily turning away from God. Thinking that we can be independent. Thinking that we can be autonomous. Thinking that we can, uh, well, as one expression I heard one time, that we can be God, in the little g, we can be God apart from God. Huge mistake huge mistake that leads to such an awful caricature and portrait of mankind. What are the characteristics of this fallen nature? They're horrible. 
kind of think that Alfred Hitchcock would have it, would have wonderful material here if he wanted to make a movie about it. Actually, Alfred Hitchcock was more subtle. This would be Steven Spielberg stuff. But it's horrifying, it's terrible stuff. So what are these characteristics of this fallenness? This man is wild. He has forsaken the image of God, the rational soul, and he's now become like a wild, uncontainable beast. Wild beast. He is a man now who is stripped and naked, not just of clothing, but of his reason. He's no longer a reason endowed creature, bearing the stamp of the image of a divine image. He is isolated, not only from the people in the town, he is isolated from God and even from himself. And because of all of this, he's self-destructive. Self-destructive. And because of all of this, he is like one who lives among the dead. Christ says to a rich man, go, bury, uh, bury, let the dead bury their own dead and come and follow me. Those who try to live apart from God are like the dead. They have no life within them. They have no light. They have no life. They have no goal. They have no purpose. They're just surviving. They're, like, uh, they're just like the wild beasts, driven by the passions and by impulses, and no longer by reason or seeking the kingdom of God, seeking the grace and the goodness of God. The odd irony of this event is that by, by what takes place, it is revealed who really was demon-possessed and who was not. This man was restored to the full dignity of his humanity. But the townspeople, the herdsmen, who rejected Christ, seeing his, the, the mercy and the grace of God, this healing and this restoration of this man, they demand that he leave them. Go back to Capernaum. Leave our shores. Leave us alone. These are the people who are truly demonic. These people are the ones who were truly possessed. They rejected Christ. In their, moment, in, their, in their moment of visitation, at this time of the Annunciation to them, their own Annunciation to their town, of the Christ, they rejected him and wanted nothing to do with him and sent him away. They would rather be king of a dunghill than servants in the courts of the righteous. How often that is true of us. We want to do it on our own, even if we're miserable, rather than turn to God, be humble, and to live. Now, it doesn't seem very obvious that there's any connection with this event with what we heard from the epistle to the Galatians. But there is. Christ starts off this section of, the, of his epistle to the Galatians by talking about how strong and how knowledgeable and how, what, how tremendous he was in the law of Moses. He was a Pharisee. He was an expert in the law. He was zealous. He took a great deal of pride in all of that. And yet, he was, uh, had that encounter with Christ. He was converted, and he was completely transformed. The man who was such an expert in the law was now reduced to a man who needed to learn and needed to grow and needed to, to learn about God all over again. So 14 years after his conversion, he is writing this epistle to the Galatians. St. John Chrysostom makes a very good observation where, Christ, where Paul says 
that the grace of God was revealed in him, not to him. St. John Chrysostom says, it is by saying that he was converted not just by words, not just by thoughts, not just by insights, but by the Spirit of God that completely converted his soul. And not just for his own sake, to see the living Christ, but to proclaim Christ to all the world. Christ was revealed in him. He says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The driving force of his life, that which animates him, uh, that which and should animate each and every one of us. Apart from the spirit, the spirit of truth, we are dead. We are dead, lifeless persons. It is an, it's a, an amazing uh, uh, situation in uh, Galatia. Fourteen years after Paul is converted, he goes on his first missionary journey to spread the gospel. And he encounters the people, the Christians in Galatia, and there's already trouble. There was a bunch of people, this was written by about 40 to 50 A.D. This is probably St. Paul's earliest, if not first, epistle. And he writes to warn the Galatians, and he even calls them foolish, because they are beginning to entertain and believe a group of people called the Judaizers. And the purpose of the Judaizers was that they were saying, oh, oh wait a minute, even though you're Christians, you have to keep, to keep the law of Moses. You have to become a good Jew before you can become a Christian. And so again, they were saying, you have to have adherence to the law of Moses. Men have to be circumcised. You have to follow all the commandments of the Mosaic law. If you are to be righteous, if you are to have salvation, and of course saw this as scandalous. It is a reversion uh, back to the law of Moses, a reversion back to the inevitable uh, consequences and, of the law. As Paul says, who keeps the law perfectly? And if you don't keep the law perfectly, then you are condemned. You can't be righteous before God if you do not keep the whole law. So these are the consequences of reverting back to the law of Israel. The law, of, the law of Moses. He saw it as a nullification of the grace of God. The grace of God that can transform us. The law, begin, begin, in, the, in the Mosaic law, we, are, we must follow the law uh, uh, out of, out of what is it? we are obliged to follow the law and try to pursue righteousness. By the Holy Spirit, we want to do what is righteous. The, standard, the righteousness is still the same, but now by the Holy Spirit we are enabled, we are given grace, and now it's not because we are forced to do it, it's because we want to do it. Huge difference. A huge difference. And so St. Paul was saying to the Galatians, don't listen to these people. You are upsetting and dividing and breaking up the church by doing what you are doing, by this teaching. There have been many, several traumatic ruptures in the life of the church, in, Christ, in the tradition of Christianity. The schism, 1087, East and West, the Catholics and the, and the Orthodox. In the Protestant Reformation, you had the complete rejection of, of, of the apostolic tradition and of the holy mysteries. Uh, the, uh, now you have over 200, I think the last count was over 200 Protestant denominations. There, there, there's even uh, division and, and ruptures even within Protestantism. 
So it becomes very clear that have the necessity of clinging to the apostolic faith, the original faith. And this didn't happen just starting in 1087. We can see that this begins right, right away, early on, in the first century. There is trouble, there's division, there is heresies. There is a distortion of the gospel. And how crucial and important it is for us to, to hold on to the original faith of the apostles, the eyewitnesses of Christ. Otherwise, we will be led astray. Otherwise, we will be confused, we will be divided, and we will, we will be uh, trying to make it up as we go, as, as the world so often tries to do. Callistus Ware was, is, was a wonderful hierarch, brilliant, brilliant man. I wish, I wish I could have met him. But he has written that when we read the scriptures, when we study, when we read the scriptures, we don't do so as individuals. We do those, we do so as members of the church. And when we read the scriptures as members of the church, we need to acquire the mind of the church, which means liturgics, it means patristics, it means all that has gone before us that is true to the original faith. We have to acquire that uh, ecclesial mind in order to stay on track. This is what we do here. This is what we do every single Sunday. Every single time we, we participate in the divine services, we are acquiring the mind of the church, which progressively gives us the mind of Christ. Makes us new again. Transforms us. Raises us up from dust and ashes of death to life-bearing life -bearing creatures and servants of God that reveal His life, His image, His reason. His, uh, we'll be reason endowed sheep of his pasture. May we always seek that. May we always run towards that. May we always work for that. May we always persist when the evil tries to dissuade us or to distract us or to prevent us from following after God and doing what is good. So my brothers and my sisters, let us take heart that what happened to this man, how he was completely transformed and renewed and restored to his dignity, is also what is offered to us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.